Football Podcast, fresh off a win against Vanderbilt. I'm James DiVirgilio alongside Alan Williams. We've got a great show for you. We're going to break down in detail the Vanderbilt game. We're going to visit with Chris Blair, the play-by-play announcer for LSU. And then we're going to spend the second half of the show doing what we typically do, which is using film study to analyze our matchup, as well as having a discussion of the various offensive styles and schemes that exist in college football, the ones we like, the ones we don't like, to get you oriented to some of the things we talk about on a weekly basis on this show. Alan, what are your thoughts on this Vanderbilt game? How'd you watch it in Moscow? What was the experience for you? How do you feel about it two days later? So I watched it close to live this time, which was nice. Right after the game ended, I pulled it up. Of course, nobody in Moscow asked me what I thought about the Gator game. Unfortunately, I guess, most of the time. But it was great. I mean, I I was really pleased with our performance overall. Um, There's certainly some very stressful moments in this game, especially in the first half. But um, thankful for a Gator win. Thankful that I didn't have to be out in the rain during the game as well. How about you? Yeah, thankfully it didn't really rain that badly at the game, which was nice. And I think my my thoughts when I left the stadium were that the game itself felt like it was in this sort of malaise. It didn't feel like either team really had a lot of energy. The stadium didn't have a lot of energy. It's a noon game. Vanderbilt gets waxed by Bama the week before. Our fan base is still in sort of like an eight-year hangover waiting for something great to happen. And we won the game, and I left with maybe more questions than I had answers, kind of wondering, okay, well, we did move the ball and scored. What was that, too? It's hard to tell when you're there in person as to what that is. And they moved the ball on us a lot and scored. What was that all about? And so I kind of found myself wanting this week to really watch the film to figure out what exactly uh, went down. And the film reveals very clearly what happened. But if you were anything like me, you kind of left that game wondering what was good, what was bad, how it happened, and and sort of what the trigger the trigger was for that, and uh, we're going to unpack all of that for you as we sort of walk through each one of those things today. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, did you feel like this was a big win, or is it more, eh, it's just Vandy? You know, this is a Vanderbilt team that that could play football. I thought they could compete and challenge with us, which is exactly what, what they did. Uh, so I think we have to be honest about where we are as a program. And at this point in time, every game we play is a game that we could lose. And not every game we play is a game that we can win. And that's sort of unfortunately where we are. This is a game we should have won and we won it. It, it played out, I think, how maybe I expected. I picked us to win 23-17, but I thought the game would be something like this. It was higher scoring than I think most of us thought. But all in all, it felt about right given where Vandy was and where we were. Uh, it's no longer the Vandy of old, but the reality is as an SEC East team not named Georgia, or really as an SEC team not named Alabama or Georgia, and I'm not going to put Georgia in that top tier yet, but certainly they look better than the others do, you're sort of just fighting against other teams like yourselves, and you have to beat those teams to at least get a chance to play a meaningful game against the teams that look better. So no, it's not just Vandy. Maybe if Florida was really Florida, then it would feel more like just Vandy, but it doesn't feel that way to me. So I'm going to say that it was a good win. It was a win that we needed. It was a win before the season, Alan, that you had highlighted as a potential loss for us. So I know that, uh, you know, that kind of illustrates the importance of uh, mentally framing what it meant maybe before and then after the game. Yeah, you mentioned this. This is not Vandy of the 90s or early 2000s where 
I mean, they're basically a glorified high school team. It felt like sometimes it's not peak Vandy under James Franklin. And of course this isn't peak Florida either, but I think it needs to be appreciated as a solid win. Um, These are difficult because you want to still look for improvement and, you know, the things that aren't going well need to be addressed certainly. But yeah, I think the team and the program and the fans should enjoy this win. Uh, it's yeah, I could see that there's a little I can understand there being a little low energy noon kick. It is Vanderbilt. We play them every year. They're not normally very good. Uh, but this was an important win. I'll say that. If we lose this game, it looks really bad. And this is Vanderbilt team that beaten Kansas State and heading into that Bama game, people were thinking maybe you know, they could hang with Bama for a little bit. And obviously that turned out to be not the case, but Bama is capable of steamrolling anybody. So a good win, but more importantly, I think an important win. And James, we scored over 30 points, quite a few more, 38, I believe, to be exact. And so what allowed the offense to be a little more successful this week? We've talked a lot about play calling and design. What did you see that we put on the field that allowed us to be more successful this week? Well, let me start by addressing what we talked about last week, which was that Vanderbilt's defense plays a 3-4 and that their linebackers had been taking wrong angles uh, from what we saw on film study. Those two things, of course, held true. They they played their base 3-4 defense most of the plays we faced against them and their linebackers continued to struggle uh, accurately assessing which way our plays were going. But beyond that, there's some good news and some bad news. And I'm going to start with the good news. The good news was, especially early on in the game, we had done a really nice job of film study and preparation heading into this contest. A lot of our play calls uh, were, were really catching Vanderbilt off guard. We ran more counters and more weak side runs this game than I've seen us run all season long. Uh, Vanderbilt was very prepared for us to run strong side and power offense, uh, and they frequently would have shifted their linebackers to the wrong side of the field. So they were guessing wrong. We were being unpredictable when it came to the run game. That was some nice work by the staff to identify that on film. We had some good outside vertical route combos, some simple plays with some high-low attacks. That was nice. We've been talking about that all year long. Uh, We continued to go for it and be successful on fourth down, which helped in this game. Maybe it's something we don't give Mac enough credit for. But he does go for fourth downs a lot, and he seems to have a knack for when we should go for them. Yes, they're fourth and short. Yes, they tend to be more conservative, uh, obvious situations when you would go for it. But he does go for them. A lot of other coaches maybe would not have. That's the good news. Maybe not the bad news, but the other side of the news is Vanderbilt played defense against us exactly as we hoped every team would which was very curious. You've heard me say every week this season and last season, the playbook for stopping Florida's offense is to load the box, play man coverage on the outside, mixing in some zone, uh, but essentially bring at least eight or nine guys in the box and force us to pass the football into these odd man fronts. Vanderbilt, rather amazingly, was content to play even numbers or even down numbers in the box. It's the first time I've seen a team take this kind of strategy against us uh, since I can really remember looking at film of this team under McIlwain. It was rather fascinating. You can find several examples where we have our full complement of offensive linemen plus a tight end and a running back or even a slot receiver blocking against Vanderbilt's base 3-4 defense. And oftentimes it wasn't even seven guys, it was just six guys. 
So that was a really interesting scenario. So what does that mean to me? It means to me that we really can't form any opinions on our play calling in this game because we have no idea if we still would have run the ball if Vanderbilt had loaded up that front like most typical teams do. Uh, it did, however, confirm one thing, Alan, that I've been saying, and I want to I want to bring this up because I continue to think it's true. I think our offensive line is very solid, and I think this game showed that against Vanderbilt. They were willing to go even numbers with us, and we punished them all game long. Uh, the weaknesses I saw continue to be our tight ends blocking. Goolsby really struggles to block the edge. Uh, really anyone out there, whether it's Lewis, Goolsby, or Steven, struggles to block an edge rusher. And early on in the game, we had Tyler Jordan in there, and he just had an atrocious, atrocious start to the football game. He got beat three times, I think, on the first four plays. But in reality, and this has been our thesis, Alan, I still think the offensive line is a strength of this team. And I think, unfortunately, until we get the numbers game right, uh, it's it's difficult for those guys when they're when they're six on eight or six on nine. But this game, to encapsulate this thought, was perfect for us because of how Vanderbilt chose to defend us, which was very curious to me. And if I were doing a Vanderbilt podcast, I'd spend a lot of time talking about what exactly Derek Mason and the staff was thinking, uh, based upon everything we know about our own team here in Florida. But it worked out to our advantage. I'm certain it's going to give us confidence heading into this game. It does not, however. It does not, however, support the thesis that we all of a sudden figured out how to build or call better plays. Uh, so, mixed bag of results there. Uh, take that how you will. This week will also be insightful as we face yet another 3-4 team, except LSU tends to be much more aggressive. So we'll kind of get a different taste of how things go this week. Alan, I know I just threw a ton of stuff there at you. Uh, what were your thoughts as you kind of walked away from the game, and I presume didn't watch it again on film, as to why we were successful? Yeah, I went back and looked at some of our plays and, you know, especially some of our offensive line plays. And I would agree that this was their best week yet. Um, they did an excellent job of creating space. And now still they're not an elite unit. They're not – they seem to be confused on certain times. They'll whiff on some blocks. This is not a, you know, all-American type unit. But they did a really good job of creating space. And I think the thing that's helping this offense as much as anything is Malik Davis. Every time I watch this guy run, he picks the right spot, which is a very underrated quality for a running back. We tend to think speed, power. And if you're looking at that, if you're hoping for that, that's Mark Thompson. But Mark Thompson, who I do want to praise for, you know, some of the stuff he's done in terms of uh, catching the ball out of the backfield. He's picked up his pass blocking a little bit, which has helped. But Malik Davis has been excellent in reading the right hole. And he's not a big guy by any means, and we're using him on short yardage situations. So I think that speaks to the coaching staff's confidence in his ability to pick the right spot. Um, and you're right, Vanderbilt, is they're not super heavy up front. They're not a load-the-box type of team. But Derek Mason knows what he's doing on defense. I mean, he's proven that over and over again. Um, and I don't think that they felt like their corners could hold up um, on the outside against our receivers. So that's probably a good sign. I thought we played great in the fourth quarter, or excuse me, third quarter, pretty well in the fourth as well. But, yeah, we've still got a lot of stuff to work on, but I was pleased with this offense's commitment to running the ball. And now now that doesn't solve our long-term problems. But even when we got into some bad down-and-distance situations, we're still willing to run the ball because we were having success, and they didn't get away from that. Um, so nice job by the coaching staff and good execution by those guys. So looking at the quarterbacks, Del Rio starts the game, the offense scores 14 points, and then he winds up taking a 
an injury, and we'll talk about how that injury occurred in a moment. How did you feel first about Del Rio and his performance? I thought he was fairly solid. I mean, it's not much different than the Kentucky game. Um, he is a guy that, you know, we've said a million times, does certain things well. I thought the offense played with a nice tempo, something McElwain mentioned um, in his press conference. And that's, a, you know, the offense just seems to be more in sync. I guess I would say that. And was something we talked about last week as well. Um, I think he did fine. I think he, uh, you know, led us to 14 points. Maybe we would have put up some more. Uh, but not a stellar showing. And when Vanderbilt's putting their foot on the gas and putting up 17 points in the first half, you kind of feel like you're going to need a little bit more. Um, and I thought Franks gave us that in some spots. How do you feel about Del Rio? Yeah, I thought Del Rio played exactly like you said. He he played well, and, and what he really does is he brings the tempo to the offense. There's a different confidence level the offense has, and I don't think it's because they think Del Rio's going to go drop a bunch of dimes out there, but the simple little things he does, which we've covered before on the podcast as a quarterback, lead to clean execution uh, in and out of the huddle, personnel groupings, lining guys up, running motion, using his cadence. Those are things that I thought he had us running a very competent and polished-looking offense in the first half against what a lot of people thought was was a, still a probably pretty good Vanderbilt defense. It's looking more and more like that's probably not actually the case this season for them. But I thought he was clean. I thought he was simple. I thought he gave you exactly what you expected at the time in the game he went out I think like a lot of fans there was probably some level of concern with Franks coming in that we were not going to be able to continue to score with Vanderbilt uh, given how things could have gone how they chose to defend Franks how Franks was was going to be utilized so let's talk about the Del Rio injury for a second first Alan I don't know about you but Del Rio in that particular play has a a completely clean pocket he spooks himself and runs backwards out of the pocket Something we've seen quite a few Gator quarterbacks do. Uh, I'm not really sure why. Uh, Will Greer, of course, was great at climbing the pocket, which he was clearly taught in his own. Somewhere along the lines, our quarterbacks are not climbing the pocket when they should be. But in this particular example, Del Rio escapes for really no reason. He's actually not getting any pressure. He goes backwards. He compounds his problem by backpedaling, 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 waiting to throw the ball until he's basically going to get taken airborne and driven down onto his shoulder. And sort of the classic quarterback hurts his AC joint or breaks his collarbone injury, which is precisely what happens. Very unfortunate for Del Rio. Sort of puts a, a bookend on a career for him that's been extremely frustrating. Uh, and something that I think was entirely avoidable. So unfortunate, but avoidable. But let me bridge that gap then, Alan, with Del Rio goes out. Uh, we have a situation where we get the ball back at, at the end of the first half uh, in a situation where we're going to cover that timeout situation as well. But we get the ball back. There's about 40 seconds left. Franks comes in the game. Were you expecting us to sort of just take a few knees or run the ball and kind of get out of there? Or did you think we were going to try to go for points? We were going to run it and punt and try to kill the clock. And I think that's what a lot of programs, coaches, it's not, wouldn't be a terrible decision. You're bringing the backup quarterback. Hey, let's just get out of here without anything terrible happening. Um, so I was going to say this in a later segment, but props to the coaches for coming in and not settling. And maybe they saw the writing on the wall that we're going to need to put up some points to win this game. But I was really surprised they let Franks throw there and, you know, very impressed with Franks coming in. You know, probably wasn't expecting to play during the game, um, but kept his head on straight and did what he does best is throw a beautiful ball downfield to Cleveland. 
And that was maybe the biggest bone of the game for me, that they were going to be aggressive enough to let him do that. Vanderbilt had to respect that. And so that was huge to get us another field goal. Now, we probably should have gotten a touchdown if you know Frank's had thrown a little bit better pass to Mark Thompson. He's probably able to sneak in the end zone there. But the fact that we came out throwing, I was really thankful for um, because I think we needed it. Uh, what about you? Were you expecting us to kneel it out there? I, I wasn't sure what we were going to do, but I think I thought a run was going to be safe. The best thing I saw in that sequence of plays was how well it was built. And so earlier on in that down, Franks, or in that play series, Franks takes a check down to Mark Thompson on the sideline and he picks up 10 yards. And they basically come right back to the same look and they attack that same safety who did run with Cleveland on the previous go route. And they hit him, not the next play, but another play afterwards on the same exact, same exact look. And this time, his first two steps are forward to come help on Thompson, and he eats the run play fake, and then by then Cleveland's gone. And so really nice work there. We talk a lot about the play calling being poor, especially me, but in this case, very, very nice series. I thought, like you said, critical, critical moment in the football game. I think Vanderbilt was probably feeling a lot of momentum at that point in time with a 17-14 lead, Frank's coming in, probably a lot of belief on that sideline. This was going well for them, and then uh, you know they sort of escaped with just giving up a field goal, but either way, nice work by Frank's. I thought also we're going to play a little best-worst throw for Franks, kind of his high-low variance right now. He makes that throw and then very quickly follows it up by trying to to do his best Dan Marino impression, slinging one into the end zone that goes right through a Vanderbilt safety's hands and almost into Swain's hands. You could argue Swain should have caught it, but in reality, it, it should have been a pick. So he sort of illustrates that, that hey, I can make yes. this incredible NFL-style post-route throw right on the money, uh, but then I can do something that every freshman in the country can do, which is take the ball and throw it right over the middle to a safety standing still. So kind of like illustrating those those high and lows. I know you had some comments you wanted to make on on sort of Franks's best and worst, if you will, during the game. Arguably the best throw was that first half bomb to Cleveland. We talked about how important it was. But there's a play in the second half where I think it's about an 18-yard gain, and he just shows off his cannon of an arm Um completion to Cleveland that shows you what he can do in this offense. And I loved it. I was like, this is, this is a guy with, you know, extreme arm talent. And then, yeah, the, the interception was just about as bad a decision you can make. And, you know, the only reason it wasn't intercepted is the fact that he probably blasted it through those guys' hands. Um, so the good and the bad with Franks, you know, I think you're going to have to live with that. Obviously, if you're going to continue to play him, unless you want to play Malik Zaire, I um, but the good and the bad very much shown up in this game. Uh, any more thoughts about Franks before we move forward? I think what you just said is the key is, is he has some, some plus sides and we've talked about it before. We're definitely going to cover it in the second half. What kind of offense should we utilize for Franks? What maximizes his skill set? It's certainly an entirely different offense than what Luke Del Wea would run if you were trying to maximize his skill set. And you mentioned, like we said, the post route as well as that deep comeback route. Those are throws he can make that a lot of other guys in college football cannot make. Uh, so we did some of that stuff. That's the good news. We did have a few things in the playbook this week that allowed him to do that. Uh, and that was that was nice. And, and hopefully we'll see a progression against LSU this weekend as well. We're going to cover that in the second half of the show. Uh, but before we do that, we need to switch over to the defense. The defensive side of the ball has caught a lot of heat, I think, this weekend. I had a personal exchange with a longtime fan of the podcast, one of my best friends, as we do each weekend, and he was he was hot and adamantly hot that Randy Shannon is a problem, the Gator defense is a problem, it's the worst it's been since Charlie Pell, 
and that we've got an issue with Randy Shannon, essentially. Uh, and so I know that wasn't the only, he wasn't the only person echoing that. So let's talk about the first thing that, that Coach Mack talked about in the presser today, which was we give up a lot of passing yards, a whole bunch of those. Are you concerned with the defense's performance thus far through the season, as well as the performance in this game against Vandy? In short, yes. And we've talked a lot on this podcast about our deficiencies at safety. And unfortunately, our linebackers looked lost in coverage a lot this week. And our boy Voshan had a few pretty bad moments. And of course, when the rush got home, things went well for us. But when it didn't, we got exposed. And of course, I do want to credit Bandy's offense. Kyle Shermer made some really nice on-target throws that worked you know, well against our inexperienced secondary. And I think their design was interesting. They did a, a good job of this, you know, deceiving us, but it does leave me um, a little concerned. I wouldn't put that blame on Randy Shannon yet. I don't think that's the case. We knew we were going to take a step back on defense this year in terms of talent and experience and injuries have played a part in that as well. Uh, what about you? How are you feeling about our inexperience? Are you ready to, I know you've liked Randy Shannon. Are you ready to pile on him too? You know, I'm not. And I, th- and I think that's because one, I believe in history and his historical production is that he's basically always a top 10 defensive coordinator. Two, when you watch on film, it gives you a better idea of what is happening. Uh, several things happen in this game. The first I want to highlight is what we talked about last week. Alabama was able to use lots of edge pressure. They blitzed a lot. They brought pressure straight off the edge. Uh, and they did that frequently in obvious passing situations. We did not employ that. Uh, Randy Shannon does not blitz a lot. I also think Randy Shannon has a serious fear of leaving our linebackers, any linebackers, covering any receiver, which came true in this game, which was the second thing we talked about, which was that Vanderbilt's offense was going to cause problems for our linebackers. And boy, did it ever. Now, here's what's interesting. Jim McElwain said on his podcast, uh, not his podcast, on his uh, press conference on Monday, two different times that we, and presumably we means Randy Shannon, were surprised by how often Vanderbilt passed the ball over the middle of the field. Uh, We were surprised with their game plan. We didn't communicate to our players what Vanderbilt was going to do. Now, that raises questions for me. That makes me wonder a little bit what's going on. If if I, uh, a a person who's sitting in Gainesville, Florida, watching not even the All-22 camera on film can identify what Vanderbilt's probably going to attack and how I would attack us, is not recognized by Randy Shannon and the crew. However... In reality, Randy Shannon's defense relies on athletes. It's a very vanilla style, meaning we're not going to disguise a whole lot of things. We're not going to show you one look before the snap and then roll into a second one all that often. Uh, This is not uncommon. There's plenty of NFL defenses that are very good that embody a similar mentality, like the Seattle Seahawks, for example. So there's a range of defensive styles you can employ. You can be on the conservative end where Randy Shannon is, where your goal is to have really athletic guys. You stay primarily in your base defense and you bring some pressures here and there. And then on the other end of that spectrum, you have guys like Don Brown in Michigan who are hyper-aggressive, lots of different blitz, lots of pre- and post-snap movement. Uh, it just sort of depends on what your flavor is. It, it One is not necessarily better than the other, but you have to have the right personnel. So on film... I think you frequently see that our guys are in the right positions. Uh, We're not blowing coverages. We have guys in the right area. However, we don't make the play. So in the first half of this football game, you saw a lot of scenarios where David Reese, Foshan Joseph, Jeremiah Moon really struggled to cover the slot receivers for Vanderbilt. 
Uh, also, what you mentioned, Alan, was true. Shermer made some really nice throws in this game. It wasn't like he was throwing the ball to guys that were wide open. He is putting the ball into very small windows uh, and creating a lot of those offensive yardage through him. So to me, then, the big question became what happened in the second half? Well, in the second half, we really shut them down. Aside from the last drive where Vanderbilt converted two, two fourth downs, we kind of played a little bit softer to let them use the clock. They had about 30 yards of offense in the second half. Uh, and that was a significant change. We employed a significant, significantly more nickel as opposed to 4-3. Uh, so we played two linebackers as opposed to three. We helped in obvious passing situations by not having uh, guys like Voshan or Garcia or whatnot playing as much. So there's things Randy Shannon, I thought, did in the second half to address those concerns. Once we did that, we more or less took care of it. One big narrative that came out of this game, though, was we didn't get a lot of pressure. Should we have blitzed more? Uh, and the answer, in my opinion, was we did we did make some mistakes with regards to our scheme in those situations. And one primary example was in the first half, Vanderbilt frequently was max protecting. They were employing seven or eight blockers, and we were simply bringing our four. And I think I think what Randy Shannon thought was we would be able to essentially win with six guys covering their two or three. We were not able to win that battle. And in the second half, we evened the numbers up a little bit more. Uh, whether it was seven versus five or a lot of times six versus four, uh, Vanderbilt got behind and that even dictated some of those situations, which allowed us, which allowed us essentially to have a lot more success with our four rushers. So I don't think the D line had a bad game. I think the D line was against the numbers for most of the game. And in fact, they generated a lot of pressure even against the numbers in a lot of situations. So something for Randy Shannon to look at, something for you as a fan to look at as the season goes on is how do we handle teams that want to max protect against us and move the ball because there is a cost to blitzing there is a cost to bringing extra guys and that's that you are going to leave our weak safeties and our weak coverage linebackers covering one-on-one with a lot of space I'm not sure Randy at this point in time wants to do that but our defensive numbers are certainly the worst they've been in a very long time we're below I think where you and I Alan thought we were going to be at this stage of the season. Uh, There's a lot of season left, and on film, I continue to think that his scheme, Randy Shannon's scheme, is solid. We need more depth. We need more athletes. We need better players in some of these positions, and that's part of the problem right now. So I'm going to say slight game planning issues on Saturday, mainly, though, bigger inexperience issues on Saturday. No team leader out there. Reese middle linebacker doesn't have a ton of experience calling out plays and formations. Uh, you know, there's miscommunications. There's there's issues guarding one on one when it comes to the certain matchups. So, Vanderbilt did a nice job in the first half. I thought we did a nice job in the second half. I thought we've given up a lot of yards as a defense this season. But stay tuned. This season is not over. I think if we can stay healthy, we can we can continue to improve. I'm not willing to say that we're making critical mistakes there, especially in the coaching realm, just yet. But certainly something to watch. Agreed. And, you know, this is a place we keep saying this guy's name. He saw the field a little bit, but Kylan Johnson is a converted safety, you know, playing linebacker. And I think that he could really help out this unit, really help us kind of in that Marcus May mold, you know, in the nickel that he's playing a lot, you know, hopefully coming downhill in the run game, but also providing a little more than what we've been getting in pass coverage. So, I do have hope as well. And let's talk about some players who impressed. And a couple of young guys for me, I want to mention TJ Slayton. He got a little bit of run on the broadcast. This guy is enormous. And when he makes a play, he can just envelop an entire 
defensive line. He got to play a little bit more this week because Kerry Clark was a little hurt. Um, but I'm excited about that guy's potential. It could be huge for us. And, yeah, I think uh, Jordan Sherritt, we said his name a bunch on here. He's a guy I think that is kind of maximizing his talent. Like he's not a huge guy, but he still has a decent bull rush. And, you know, I, I love this guy. Really, I'm really thankful to have that type of player in our program. And, of course, a really solid game from CC. Again, I think he shows up every week, which I appreciate from him. What about you? Who who impressed for you, especially on defense? Yeah, I really like the guys you mentioned there. And, and Slayton's an important one. Uh, part of a, a scheme change to Randy Shannon, which is much different than a Jeff Collins, is that you need a very stout and strong defensive tackle. He wants that guy to be able to hold up essentially over the course of a two-gap. He wants to be able to hold two linemen at a time or two gaps by himself. We don't have that yet outside of him. We have those recruits coming in. We have those young guys in the roster. Um, so an additional point to notice there. And I like that scheme going forward in the future. But I think all of the guys that you named were the main guys, especially Kylan. I thought the game changed when we brought him in. And I think that was smart by the defense. It's a good tactical employment. Look, we got a problem. Garcia could not have played in this game. And he played very sparingly because of that. And I thought Kylan brought a lot of calmness to the linebacking court. There wasn't that same fear that, oh no, something bad is going to happen, whether this linebacker gets beat by a running back out of the backfield or a slot receiver uh, running some sort of post or in route. That really calmed things down. Uh, I thought outside of those guys, uh, Polite continues to impress. Even though he didn't have a huge stat line in this game, he just does everything well. He really does everything well. And uh, he's becoming a go-to guy for us, uh, which is really wonderful. I think him and Zuniga have locked down those defensive end spots. And our defensive line as a whole has really been a strength of this team. We thought it would be. They've been very, very productive. Uh, If we had a better linebacking and safety core, I think this defensive line could be borderline prolific with their production. The only thing that holds them up now is that teams have been successful being able to get rid of the ball relatively quickly because we don't necessarily have everyone covered. But all in all, there's there's certainly guys flashing each and every week on that defensive side of the ball, even if we kind of keep naming the same the same two guys, primarily in Washington and Chauncey, on the not-so-impressive list. Who did you have on offense that impressed, Alan? I mentioned Malik Davis, our running back. I mean, love that kid. Uh, really excited to see what he does. And then I thought P. Ryan played well, uh, especially – with, with the field being what it was, um, you know, I, I thought he did an excellent job of, of staying on his feet and getting into the end zone. So I wanted to give him, you know, some props for that. Um, you know, Brett Heggie won SEC, I think, lineman of the week or something like that. Um, it's hard to tell all the time, but that's, that's a good sign for him that people are noticing his play. Um, so that's just something from the news and notes section. Uh, what about you? Yeah, Malik Davis is a is a star in the making. Uh, he he is fantastic. He's the best running back we've had in quite some time here. And not only does he hit the right holes, as you mentioned, but if there is a guy, an unblocked man in the hole waiting for him, he generally makes him miss. And it's not necessarily he completely whiffs, but he does not slow him down. Malik doesn't allow that tackle to slow him down because it gets him off balance. And that play, when he drove in for his first touchdown, he took a toss to the left, and uh, basically it was one-on-one with a Vanderbilt linebacker, and he got him off leverage just a little bit, got him off balance, and used that lever to drive him into the end zone. Just extremely impressive stuff from this guy, who's a freshman. I mean, he's so polished in so many respects, including how well he does pass protection. 
Really impressed by him. And then Cleveland, which is really a shame we got the news that he's going to be out for quite some time with a high ankle sprain. But that guy is an NFL receiver. And it, I'm going Definitely. to be I'm going to be sad not to watch him play anymore. And we haven't been able to really utilize him the way you'd like to. But he makes big plays each and every week, and he he is really a great one. And that's a big blow to us going forward because nobody can guard him, and that, that's going to change the way I think we approach things on offense. But I thought those two guys really stood out, and I thought the offensive line as a whole had a really solid game. A guy that we haven't been talking a lot about, Martez Ivy, struggles to run block. I think that's a weakness for him if he wants to play in the NFL. But his pass blocking at left tackle has been exceptional. Last last year, it was a frequent commentary. We talk about Sharp and the struggles that went on that position. So hats off to Martez Ivy. He has been unnamed primarily because in the pass blocking phase, he's done his job each and every week. Uh, congratulations to him there. Let's move on. And uh, kind of an interesting... I don't know, coaching point slash strategy point. This was talked a lot about on the broadcast if you were at the game. Um, but as Malik Davis breaks through on that critical fourth down, ends up you know running the 40 yards into the end zone, essentially seals the game. There's a lot of debate on whether he should have, once he broke, it, broke through the line, taken a knee because Vanderbilt didn't have any timeouts. We could have just ended the game. Let me ask, do you think he should have gone down? Hundred percent. He absolutely should have gone down. If he goes down, the game is completely over. There is no scenario where Vanderbilt can win. By him not going down, there are scenarios where Vanderbilt can win. However unlikely those scenarios are, they still exist. Secondly, the play that was called, which we now all know is called Hammer, is a play where Malik is supposed to go down. He's aware in the huddle that when he gets the first down, he goes down. So it's something you've practiced. It's something they've talked about. It's something they certainly said in the huddle, and uh, he did not do it. And ultimately, that opened up a chance for Vanderbilt to still technically tie that football game with two scores. You know, they just scored an onside kick. But him going down ends the game entirely. I think that's something you want your players to be doing. Your goal is to win a football game. You certainly do not want to give your opponent an additional chance to extend the game. Uh, what did you think? You know, I feel a little split on this. Uh, on one hand, yes, tactically, I 100% agree with you. You're supposed to go down it. And this isn't a case, you're right, where maybe just out of the blue something happened and he broke away and all of a sudden is running towards the end zone. So on one hand, I want to say, follow the coach's advice, kneel down. This is also college football. It's supposed to be fun. It's really hard to tell a freshman who breaks into the open field and has that kind of speed, just, just lay down. And it pretty much ended the game. I don't want to kill him for that. Um, in another kind of way, if you're in a closer game, I don't know, with maybe more on the line, maybe kneel down. I, I don't want to get too up in arms about it, but tactically, I 100% agree he should have gone down. And you know, it's a good um, point, Alan. Let me hop in here for just a second. Yeah. I thought the way McElwain handled it was really poor. And I think that's part of what you were saying. This is not like an unforgivable sin. Not to mention, I'm not sure the whole world and all the media and the post-game interview had to know about that. This is a freshman. He's easily your best player on the team right now, in my opinion. There's no one better than Malik Davis. This guy's winning you football games. I don't think you have to treat it that way. I think it's something where you could have been like, hey, you know what? Great run by him. Game on the line. He wins the game, ices the game. That's what you tell the media. That's what you show your team. And then, 
in your team meetings on Sunday night or Monday morning, you huddle the whole team together, you put the film up and you say, look, here's what we called. Here's the importance of running this play correctly. Here's why we teach you to do this. Malik, you're a heck of a player. You know, I'm glad you got that touchdown on that one. But everyone, listen, next time you got to go down. I think that's how you can handle that. I don't like the way he handled it. And I think that's some of what you were addressing in that situation. This is not like a mountainous issue. It certainly felt that way given his reaction. And uh, I didn't agree with that, nor think that was really a wonderful way to handle that situation because it was not like a, a world-ending egregious mistake. But it is something that should be taught to a young player so that he can continue to develop. Certainly. And yeah, I, I agree with you. I was alluding to some of McElwain's handling it. But they did make it a point of asking him after the game you know, so it was brought up on the broadcast. Um, but yes, it's a very teachable moment. And I think next time Luke Davis probably will, you know, kneel down. He's a new player. It's hard, man. The, the fans cheering you like that in a big game. Oh, well. Well, at least, at least it didn't hurt us. And uh, yeah, great, exciting moment to say the least. All right, let me ask you about our coaching performance overall. We've had a lot of criticism of the coaching, Ness Meyer, McElwain in certain strategic situations. Um, were you impressed by the coaching performance overall? I don't want to say that I was impressed. I think we, we sort of walked into a fortunate situation given what Vandy did to us. I was unimpressed by what Vandy chose to do against us. They did not use even remotely an optimal strategy. So therefore, we didn't get tested enough to know. I thought on defense, I would have liked to have seen us use more edge pressures. Uh, we rarely blitz. We really didn't even bring much pressure off the edge. I thought that was a fail, given what Vanderbilt had put on film all season long. I thought they exposed us in the first half primarily because of that. So, uh, you know, those are minor nitpicky things. And then I wanted to highlight one thing that continues to frustrate me, which is how we use timeouts. In the first half, Vanderbilt has a third and 20. They complete a pass, leaving themselves with a fourth and nine with one minute and 30 seconds left as the game is tied at 14. We have all three of our timeouts. And rather than calling a timeout, which ensures we get the ball back with a minute and 25 seconds or so, we let Vanderbilt run the entire play clock out, call timeout, kick a field goal, leaving us with just 43 seconds. Now, we wind up driving down the field on that big play by Franks, but because of the time crunch, we were unable to run the football. You could imagine if we had an additional 45 or 50 seconds, we would have been able to run the football multiple times inside the 10-yard line. So I just don't understand what the thinking is there of not calling timeout on a fourth and nine and then compounding that problem. We broke the huddle with 12 men. We come out of that timeout called by Vanderbilt. We then break the huddle with 12 guys and give them a field goal that's five yards closer. So again, smaller things here, but I'd like to see this stuff get cleared up. I'm just not sure that we really have a cohesive strategy going into games with how we want to handle managing the clock. And that frustrates me. Those are simple things. Uh, I think you, you want to give yourself a chance to have more time and more possessions. Certainly, that's very obvious. And, and we sort of do things that make me scratch my head. So all in all, coaching-wise, I thought we did some good things. I thought we did some, some bad things. I thought we had a questionable timeout handling. But more importantly, I'm just not sure we know enough yet to say, hey, we fixed some problems uh, given how Vanderbilt defended us. But certainly, the production was great. It was a win we needed. And we're not sitting here talking about how we lost this game. So with that regard, I'm going to give him like a, a B, I think a solid B effort there on the game. What about you? He already mentioned coming out there in the first half and being aggressive. I like that a lot. I think it showed that they had Franks ready to come in and play. And, you know, 
you could chalk that up to Frank's own personality and maybe his character. But I was really impressed that, you know, there was no warm-up time. He got in there and went after it. And he played well in the second half. And so I think that was huge for the team. Um, I don't know if you can really, you know, underline that enough. I uh, thought some things in the second half. You know, there's some really interesting things we did on offense. That I want to highlight that play fake to um, – and we ended up throwing to the tight end, Moral Stevens, who had more yards in this game, I think, they had all year. Um, down the sideline, stuff that um, you, what you want to see with the play action was we got the the ground game going, really opened up some things for us. I love the heavy package. I love when we do stuff like bringing CC and Jordan Sheffert, Jordan Sherrod into the game um, on the goal line situations. And I thought they caught Vanderbilt surprised a couple times with that and maybe win against Tennessee on a few things. So I want to give the coaching staff some credit because we do tend to pile on a little bit. And this is an interesting scenario for this team. I spoke about this off the pod to some people, and this feels like it's a little insensitive, um, but I'll go ahead and say it anyway. And I do want to say that I feel really bad for Luke Del Rio. Um, This kid has given everything he's had to the program since he's been here and done everything people have asked of him. So, you know, but despite his limitations on the top end, really do value him as a player. But I think this might be the best scenario for this team. I don't know that the coaches would ever have been willing to go back to Frank's. And we've talked about the biggest upside for this team is with him as in at quarterback. And maybe a Del Rio injury was possibly the best scenario for this team because Frank's doesn't have, you know, Looking over his shoulder, is are they going to put Luke back in if he struggles a little bit? The coaches aren't tempted to go conservative with Luke Del Rio in a game plan. And so I don't think this is how anybody wanted it to work out, but it does create some interesting opportunities for this team moving forward. Uh, am I crazy for thinking that? No, especially because I think you're talking about the long-term scenario. Is it the best scenario for this 2017 Gator team? Probably not. Not the way we're utilizing Franks, not from what we've seen thus far through through the games we played. Is it the best scenario for the 2018 and 2019 Gators? Yes, almost certainly. Is it the best scenario for Franks? Yes, almost certainly. Uh, so those things I think are true, and I think that's what you're alluding at. So, you know, on one side, probably lowers our, our average win this season with him at the helm. It also increases our ceiling this year with Franks at the helm, but it it you know lowers our floor too. So if you're playing the ceiling floor game, we just added a lot of variance to our results. But all in all, I think there are more upside to having there's more upside having Franks play than there is downside. The reality is you could lose a game or two more with Franks than you may have lost with Del Rio. And I'm not sure that they're gonna allow Franks to win you a game or two more based on what's going on right now. But future development wise. Yes, Alan, I think that this is what you'd want to see. And uh, I don't know that it's insensitive. It's just something we're dealing with now. Del Rio's gone, and and that sort of becomes a uh, a situation that has upside, which is good. It's not often when you lose a, a quarterback who's sort of become your starter do you think there's any benefit that really comes to that. But I think in this case, there's an opportunity for that to be true. Let's uh, regrade the position groups. Something we did in the beginning of the season and we had no information aside from the guys that played last year and some of the freshmen and some of the hype. And now we've got some information. And let's start with the offensive line. Give me a grade on the offensive line. And with your grade, Alan, tell me whether you essentially think that they have exceeded, met, or fallen short of your expectations in the preseason. 
This one's interesting. I'm going to give them a B. I thought they played fairly well. Again, a lot of criticism coming out of the Michigan game. And again, I think they have a lot of room for improvement, especially their next level blocking. Um, so, I, you know, it's a weird. It's maybe about what I expected. In certain moments, I thought they would be better. In other moments, I feared they would be worse. So maybe a route out of the B. I'll take that from them. Yeah, I like I like that. I'm going B, and then I'm going to go meets expectations. Uh, I don't think anyone thought this is going to be an All-American offensive line. And when we thought that they'd be at the strength of our team, that's all relative. But I think they're a B offensive line. They've met my expectations. I think they've been solid and wrongfully, I think, accused at times. How about running back? This is interesting because obviously the star of this group, Jordan Scarlett, has not played. I'm going to go ahead and give them an A for what they've had to endure and the emergence of Malik Davis. Now, this is a, a little bit projecting forward as well. Um, and I think this group has exceeded my expectations if you take Jordan Scarlett out of the mix. Yeah, this is almost a Malik Davis heavy answer for me because P. Ryan is nice. Thompson's all right. Uh, Malik Davis moves this up. I'm going to give him a B plus and their pass protection is still left a lot to be desired. Actually, I think Malik yes. Davis, you could argue Malik Davis's pass protection is already the best, which says a lot about the guys that are ahead of him in pass pro. But uh, regardless, Malik Davis has so much upside that it's hard to think before the season that losing Scarlet would have been something where you would have said, oh, hey, you know, we can survive that. But you're getting a guy in Malik who's much different than Scarlet and, and very potentially... For this team, for this season, could be the kind of guy you need. And maybe he wouldn't have gotten this kind of playing time with Scarlett there. In fact, it's unlikely he would have. So another weird upside move there. Uh, and that's what good recruiting does. That's why it's important to get playmakers. All right, how about the wide receiver spot? A spot we were so excited about coming into this season. It was so deep, so versatile. We kind of find ourselves at a weird juncture here losing Cleveland. Uh, what do you have with this one? Man, I'm going to be a little down in this group and say C+. And I don't know if it's totally their fault, um, but I had really high hopes. We talked about this being the best group of Florida wide receivers in a decade. Obviously, nothing from Callaway. And I'm going to actually factor that into this grade because um, he's disappointed me over and over again. Um, Cleveland's been excellent when they put in the ball downfield. I think I was expecting more from Swain and Hammond. Obviously, Swain's had some good moments. Dre Massey, almost invisible. Brandon Powell has had some huge moments. Obviously, we talked about that in the Kentucky game, but overall, not a lot of production. And then beyond that, not much to speak of. So I would say it's been a disappointment. Yeah, this one did not. The running backs have have met expectations in a different way. I forgot to say that. And the receivers for me have definitely been much below what I wanted out of them. Cleveland himself individually has been stellar, exceeded expectations. Everyone else, including the core as a whole, has definitely let me down. I'm going to lean towards like a C minus or even a D plus. And that's because you do have to factor in that Callaway was supposed to be a part of this and he's not. That's part of the group and that's his fault. And that's a failure on the team side. And then like you mentioned, just not a lot of production and it's not always the wide receivers fault. They have to have the quarterbacks throwing them the football. Uh, but Dre Massey, a guy who got so much hype two years in a row has just, he's not even on the team. He occasionally fair catches a, a kickoff and does about one or two other things a game. And, and so it's just been, it's been disappointing. Tony has been amazing and along with Cleveland, incredibly electric. And you have still a very good receiving core. But I think the excitement level we placed upon these guys is not going to be met this season, especially now with Cleveland out, which really hurts, I think, this this group. Okay, tight ends, a group that a lot of people were excited about when McElwain came to UF. The production level is not matched up. At times, they've not even been on the field 
and the passing side of things. How do you feel about them this season? Yeah, I'm going to have to give them a C as well. Their blocking has been really suspect. I do want to say Siontae Lewis had a great block to seal the edge on that fourth down run that we keep talking about from Malik Davis. But overall, I mean, they've been almost non-existent. Goolsby is a guy you don't want to use blocking. You want him out making plays, and we haven't really been able to do that, um, finding ways to get him free. Maybe in the second half of the season, we could hopefully see him some more because he's a guy, obviously, who has some talent receiving. But, yeah, this is feels like another intermediate kind of phase for this group, and hopefully the recruiting is going to uh, up the quality of like a two-way tight end that we haven't seen here in a while. Yeah, it's hard because we don't have talent at this position. We have like guys that can do one thing well, but not another thing well. And we ask them to play like a two-way tight end, like you just mentioned. Still, I'm disappointed. They did not meet the expectations for me. I thought they'd be better. I thought we'd use them more. They've been really bad in the blocking scheme of things, whether it's running or passing. Just a huge weak spot, week in and week out on film. Uh, Goolsby, he's a huge liability if he has to block even this far into his career. And he's a great asset on the receiving side, but we don't use him. So again, some of this stuff comes with how you're employing them. But I think so far they get a, they get a C minus for me. Uh, not the kind of group we were hoping to have. We knew we didn't have a lot of talent, but we're just not getting a whole lot out of them. Although I will say I thought Siante Lewis is, has really maybe reached his ceiling, which is good. I think he's maximizing who he can be as a player. And it's good to see that we're getting contributions out of Stevens, Moral Stevens, who I, I don't know that any of us thought that was going to necessarily happen this season either. So there's been some upsides. Let's flip sides of the ball and talk about the defensive line, what we thought was going to be probably one of the, the largest upside positions on the team. And I definitely think that's been accurate from my end. I'll give my grade first. Uh, they've exceeded my expectations and I'm going to give them an A. Uh, a solid A. I think they've been an excellent, excellent unit with really only a few examples of, of poor play here and there. What do you got? Yeah, I'm going to say A minus um, only because I think that they still have another gear left in them. Um, but I would say this is about my expectations, at least my hopes for them. Um, we've talked a lot about them. They've been stellar this year. The linebacking core, uh, an often commented core on the pod uh, for them. We said they. We said right from the beginning we couldn't afford injuries. I have a hard time grading them. I still think the Voshan Joseph, David Reese, Kylan Johnson threesome would be a very solid linebacking core. We really haven't seen it. We saw it for a handful of plays in the second half on Saturday, and they were, in fact, very good. We knew we didn't have depth. We know we don't have the talent. So this one feels like it met my expectations, if only because we felt like injuries would happen and the guys behind them have performed how they have. I'm going to really caveat that answer. I'm going to give them a C. And I think all of this was sort of expected for us. Like We just knew that this was going to be a tough position group for us based upon our depth. And it's been exactly that. So that's where I'm at with them. Agreed. I would say all of that. C meets expectations. And that's mostly because of injuries and shortcomings and deficiencies in this group um, and a lot from a lot of different directions. And I'm hopeful that they could play better in the second half of the season. Cornerback. And this is an interesting one. So cornerback has exceeded my expectations and I'm going to give them a B. And we started off the year with potentially Duke Dawson and Putu being the guys that were talked about coming out of practice. And neither of those guys are corners anymore. And we have two true freshmen in Henderson and Marco Wilson who are doing an, ex an excellent job, I think at that position. Uh, there's still some nuances of the game they have to learn, but but so far that's been a a true strength of our defense, and so well done to them. What do you got? 
Yeah, I'm going to say B plus. That's a little bit on a curve. You're right. There's as much as we praise those guys, it's it's a little bit as true freshmen because there's still a lot of stuff that they would want to clean up. But I could not be more excited for those guys and really looking forward to what kind of stuff they're going to put on film. All right. Last but certainly also least, <laughs> the sa- the safeties. <laughs> uh, I mean, b- just below expectations. And not that I had a ton when Marcel went down, but well below even what I expected out of them. And I think really embarrassingly bad. Uh, I think it's safe to say that they have been sub-SEC level safeties. They're glaring and and oftentimes un-college level worthy, if you can use that as a phrase. Unprofessional is what I was going to say, but they're not professionals. But just a a massive, massive weakness. And, And there does not seem to be any improvement. I know Max said in the presser he thinks Chauncey's a great player. He's glad he's on his team. He's not worried about his tackling. But this is the guy that's missing 50% of his tackles on a Gator defense that's missing almost 30% of their tackles. Those are horrifically bad, bad numbers. And our safeties have a lot to do with that. Both Washington and Chauncey Gardner. Just not happy with that position group. Yes, I'm going to say F. And the reason I'm going to say F is because, you know, despite the Marcel Harris injury, these are two guys who should be playing better. And part of that might be Chauncey being hurt. And if it is, you know, I appreciate him gutting it out because we obviously don't have any other options out there. The reason I was worried about this position group is moving Chauncey to safety might mean exposing some freshmen to playing earlier than you want them to. But that's not been the problem. It's been the back end. And so they're even using converted guys like Brad Stewart back there at safety, getting him some reps. Again, where was Sean Davis this week? It's a bit of a mystery. And so F, a hard F, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah, if anyone can tell Alan and I where Sean Davis is, if you have a Sean Davis sighting, please report it to the pod. We would love to know because a guy that got a ton of hype and was supposed to be this massively high ceiling guy is just gone. And doesn't see the field. So please, please, if you know anything, report it to Al and I. We're concerned. Uh, last but also really not least, our special teams. We knew Johnny Townsend would be a baller. I'm sure both of us are going to give him an A, uh, including a highlight tape of him drilling that Kentucky player during the double team. That was that was fun. Good for him there, Johnny. Eddie Pinheiro not been called on too often this season. Uh, hasn't had a chance to really kick any, any super long field goals, uh, but he's been very solid. And then punt coverage had been really, really weak until this past week, I think when it was, for the first time, actually solid. Uh, So for me, looking at those two facets, the kicking games is an A, the punt coverage unit was a C, and then uh, thankfully a noticeable uptick with regards to Saturday's game, which makes me feel a little bit more confident heading into the future. Yeah, I agree with that. Johnny Townsend, Eddie have been great. Thought we were going to get an Eddie bomb last week, but we screwed ourselves out of that. And, of course, our punt return, kick return teams have been pretty mediocre to bad for a while. I would like Dre Massey to get a chance to return some kicks, although every time we don't kneel it, it ends up going poorly. So I'll say C. No, I'll say B for this team, Um, special teams, and with a lot of room for improvement in certain areas. But I'm very thankful for Johnny and Eddie. So that puts the Gators at 3-1. and with wins over three SEC East opponents. So we should count our blessings and be happy because this was the first game, the Vanderbilt game, where we actually should have won and would have won and didn't have to say we could have easily been on the losing column. 
So progress there. We're in control of our own destiny. Georgia certainly looks to be in a much different position than we are, uh, which you know may or may not be your greatest fear as a Gator fan right now. So before we put this past week to bed, let's expand our scope and talk about what happened in the national games. And last week, Alan, you and I picked a set of games like we do each week, and we are going to look at the results of those games, which are rather interesting since I think both of us uh, picked wrong in a couple of them and right in a couple other ones based upon the spread. But let's start with Miami-Duke. Duke, we thought would be feisty in this game. I thought Miami showed me that they're getting better each week and that a Mark Rich coach team essentially gets the win on the road uh, in impressive fashion. And I think Miami is building something there. Although they haven't played great opponents yet, uh, they're headed in the right direction. Yeah, good win for them. I thought that was an excellent showing versus, you know, usually tough Duke team under Cutcliffe. Game of the weekend, without a doubt, was the USC-Washington State game. Mike Leach and his Pirates pull it out 30-27 on a field goal in the last minute. Thoughts on that one? Yeah, I got to watch all of this game the next morning. It was excellent. And we talked about Washington State probably winning. I think I picked them to win, at least to cover. And, yeah, very impressive showing by them. You see it. USC has seemed shaky, so that's it wasn't a surprise. A lot of people were on this game, but... You know, excellent for Mike Leach in this program. Uh, they're some of my favorites. Um, they're, they're so the plucky upstarts are always fun to cheer for. Yeah, Mike Leach has quietly built Washington State into a good team. It took a while, but here he is again, building a sort of off the beaten path program into a into a solid football team. Big win, big big win out there. Uh, Georgia goes into Tennessee and obliterates them forty one to nothing. Butch Jones Man. still, as of this recording, has his job. Monday afternoon, which is a surprise to a lot of people out there. Thoughts on that one? Yeah, I mean, that was just embarrassing for Tennessee. Georgia looks excellent. I mean, I think we maybe need to temper our Georgia thoughts somewhat because it was like, okay, Mississippi State beats LSU badly. Mississippi State, really good. Georgia then crushes Mississippi State. Wow, Georgia must be incredible. Well, now we found out the LSU is maybe just straight bad because they lost to Troy. Mississippi State also gets blown out by Auburn. Georgia's excellent, but maybe not as incredible if you're using that kind of transitive theory there. Um, but certainly Butch Jones. Whew, I mean, I heard his buyout actually went down once it, the clock turned towards October. Maybe they want to leave him in there to get obliterated by Bama and leave no doubt. So I, I don't think he'll still be there by the end of the season by any means. It certainly does not seem like it, and, and I'm surprised he's still here now. Uh, but Georgia, it's hard. We can temper our expectations, and we can say all the things we want to say, but the reality is that team plays with a style that has marked improvement, and that's what you expect to see out of a coach who's rising above everyone else. And it's certainly too early to see what this Georgia team is truly made of. There's an entire season left, but... You keep in mind they lost their actual starting quarterback in Eason. In comes their other blue chipper who's playing very well, and they are obliterating people. They've beaten a good Notre Dame team on the road. They've now dismantled the other SEC opponents, and we know the SEC is down. Uh, it certainly looks different than the Florida team looks. We can at least say that confidently now. Mississippi State, a team that was everyone's you know, sort of date, if you will, a couple of weeks ago, is now maybe not so exciting anymore. Gets gets waxed, just waxed by Auburn 49-10. And Alan, a recurring theme you talk about, 
the slow starting Gus Malzahn seems to have things rolling. Yeah, they've they've started to pick up the pace. Stidham looked excellent in flashes in this game. Auburn's defense is bone crushing. I've been really impressed by them. Yeah, and Auburn, you know, they're an intriguing team. I I was hopeful for them to start the season, and that's starting to bear out a little bit. And now it looks like Gus might keep his job because there's so many now much more winnable games in the SEC West that everybody can't get fired. And so I don't know. They're they're a fun team to watch. I'm interested to see how they're going to do the rest of the year. Clemson, Virginia Tech. Clemson just dismantles a good Virginia Tech team led by a, a solid coach in Justin Fuente. Thoughts on that one? Yeah, this game, I was wanting it to be better, and Clemson just handled their business. I mean, I th- I still think that if you force them to throw the ball and contain Kelly Bryant, keep him from running, that you can do some stuff to them, which is what Auburn actually did to them. Um, yeah, the Virginia Tech team, I was hoping that they would put a better showing in Blacksburg. But, yeah, just too big a stage for them at this moment. I... I can't say enough about Dabo Sweeney and Clemson. I know the prevailing theory now is there's Alabama, Clemson, and sort of everyone else. And until proven otherwise, that is true. What Dabo is doing there is is remarkable. And he has built an, an incredible juggernaut of a program. And, and the wins that Clemson has already this season uh, should probably catapult them above Alabama, regardless of what the teams look like. Uh, rankings don't really matter anyway. But given who they've beaten... Very, very impressive start to this campaign. Yeah, that Cleveland defense looks pretty scary. Okay, let's look at the rest of the SEC that we haven't mentioned yet. Arkansas 42, New Mexico State 24. Anything to see here? No, other than New Mexico State did not get within the point spread, which I may or may not have had a small wager on. So that was disappointing personally. But, uh, you know, Brett Bielema is still chugging along there, not really providing impressive results. Not sure if he's going to make it, but they really seem to like him in Arkansas, so keep an eye on that one. And another guy with a an unfathomably large buyout um, for <laughs> the kind of coach that he is. All right, Kentucky 24, Eastern Michigan 20. Close one. This just sums up all my fears. Like, who are we as a football team? I mean, Vanderbilt loses 59 nothing to Alabama. Kentucky plays almost every game they've played close, and we should have lost to Kentucky. Tennessee is a bad football team. At least they beat Georgia Tech, who seems to be good, so they've got some capacity. But that's just terrible. I mean, I don't know where you are as a Kentucky fan right now. It's it's just sort of, I don't know what you do. You're recruiting good players. You have weird results. But that kind of stuff is, is, is not a good look for the SEC East. Yeah, maybe chalk that up to UF hangover. I don't know. That they were so high for that game and then to, to drop so low. All right. South Carolina, 17, Texas A&M, 24. Big win for Kevin Sumlin. I mean, Sumlin is coaching yeah. himself out of a predicament here. Now, he's not done, but, you know, Will Indeed. Muschamp sort of fading. Shocker right there. Sort of the scores are coming down. The offensive production is going way down. And it's kind of funny how coaches just are what they are. And if you're a South Carolina fan, you have way too many weapons to be scoring 17 points against a team in AM who doesn't play defense. That's a frustrating result for them and a good result for someone. Yeah, someone, another guy, I guess, in this, like I mentioned, not everyone can get fired. Looks like he might get to nine wins. I don't know if eight wins saves his job, but nine probably would. Uh, so 
yeah, that he needed this result because there's still a lot of tough games left on the schedule. We've mentioned this a little bit. Alabama 66, Ole Miss 3. Just again, it's frustrating. Like Alabama's an exceptionally good team. I don't want to take anything away from them, but these results, they're just they're just reflecting on how poor the SEC is. I mean, it's just what is this? Like 66 to 3? I mean, come on. It's just embarrassing. It's bad. And yes, Alabama's really good, but just come come on. Like this is the SEC. This is I don't know. This is like predictably boring that they're just going to crush everyone in the West. And I'm thankful that Auburn is starting to get feisty because that is probably truly at this point in time, the only real hope that, that we have of, of watching Alabama play, maybe even a competitive game because come on 66 to three. Yeah. I mean, 59, nothing. I mean, like, what, what, is, what is this? It's crazy. And you know that this was going to be a game that they were going to circle regardless of Ole Miss's status because Ole Miss had, you know, notably beat them two times in a row. So, I mean, this is a this is a beatdown. Uh, <laughs> Alabama has no mercy, and I, I think that's kind of fun sometimes. The last score: Troy twenty four, LSU twenty one. We're going to talk a lot more about this game and what it means for us coming in this week. Before we do that, we want to hear from our LSU guests. One of our friends from the Bayou, and we'll get a chance to hear some more from him on his thoughts on the state of the LSU program. I'm excited to welcome to the program Chris Blair. He is the play-by-play announcer for the LSU Tigers. We had a great time with him on the show last year. It's a very interesting week to be an LSU Tiger, Chris. Let's just start with the, the main question. What is wrong, in your opinion, with the LSU Tigers 2017 edition? You know, it'd be great, guys, if I could simply put uh, a finger on it and say, hey, here's the one issue, and when this gets fixed, things are going to get better. But but ultimately, uh, it's really never that simple. Uh, I think right now, through the games that have been played so far this season, I mean, you're still looking at a team um, that, that replaces a bunch of pieces from last year. And I know that's sometimes considered to be, well, that happens every year. Well, that may be true, but defensively, the front five and the front seven last year are, are making their names be known. Uh, in a big way at the next level in the NFL. Uh, so I think, you know, you, you lose those guys, you got to replace those guys. Uh, secondly, I think there's there's been some attrition on both the offense and, and defensive line. They've battled some injuries, uh, like many teams do, uh, still without a number of key guys. And, and, again, I'm talking not skill players. I'm talking up front on the defensive front. Uh, multiple games this year with two freshmen starting uh, at right guard, two freshmen starting at right tackle. Uh, two freshmen starting on uh, in linebacker spots as well as the defensive front. But more importantly than all of that, because every team in the country, uh, if not every team, most every team will have to get through those type of issues each season. Uh, this, uh, this team right now is, is really lacking an offensive identity. Uh, and that's not news to anybody in and around the program. I mean, it's one of the things that, that Coach Ogeron has talked about uh, really since after the Chattanooga game. They were able to dominate BYU week one in the shutout, uh, outmatched at every position against Chattanooga in week two. Uh, but then the trip to Starkville, uh, the, the somewhat closer game than people wanted against Syracuse, and then, of course, the loss to Troy this past Saturday, uh, there still is yet to be a, a, a real identifiable trait of this offense that looks dramatically different than, say, what was run a year ago or two years prior to that. Uh, and I think that's a bigger headline this season because you're bringing in a, a – new head coach uh, after 
taking over the interim role last year. And in the offseason, you hire Matt Canada, who had a sensational year as the offensive coordinator at Pitt last season, the only team and only coordinator to beat Clemson, the eventual national champion, in a shootout in Clemson. Um, so it's a little surprising that it's that it's taken that long. But I think when you put all of that combination together into a pot and stir it up, uh, I don't know that you would be that surprised that you stand here at three and two. Let me ask, how much holdover culturally is there from the Les Miles era to the Coach O era? You know, it's interesting because from a coaching standpoint, and I can speak firsthand to this because of my interaction every day with the football ops building. Uh, from a coaching standpoint, operation standpoint, and just the feel of walking in that building, uh, it's very different. The culture is extremely different. Um, I think what sometimes we lose to take account is when you inherit a team or take over a team, uh, there's a little bit of time there before everybody that's on the team, and I'm talking student-athlete-wise, uh, is you know in that same culture mode. You have to remember they were recruited three, four years ago uh, with, uh, with a certain plan and a certain goal. Uh, then they played for a year or two in a system and in an environment that was a certain way, uh, and then that changes. So, you know, I think the culture is being changed and has been changed for quite a while from a from a 10,000-foot view. Now it's more of, you know, are we still having some, some bad habits? Are we having some uh, changes, obviously, in the offensive scheme, which is radically different, uh, at least uh, in theory, to what they were recruited to do? So, I, you know, I think there is some, uh, but I don't think it's a crisis of culture, and I don't think that it wasn't changed or deliberately changed. I think it's just some time for it to really permeate throughout the entire program from top to bottom. Because there's no doubt about it. Coach O has said from day one, taking over as the interim coach, things were going to change. And uh, I can speak to the first degree that that is true. I think uh, it's just a matter of getting everybody on the same page, which I think may be a little surprising uh, that that hasn't happened up to this point. Can I ask, who do you think is under more pressure, Coach Orgeron or that AD Joe Oliva? No, it's hard to say. I think they both understand, you know, the the level that is expected here at LSU and and, and the level that not only has to be maintained, uh, but a level that I think needed to be taken to the next level. I mean, that's why these changes were put into place. Hard to say who's under more pressure because uh, ultimately when things go well, as everyone knows, winning cures all. Uh, When the winning's not there, there's plenty of blame to pass around. Uh, I think there's pressure for everybody. I think there's pressure for uh, people in the administration. I think there's pressure for everybody inside that ops building that's paid on staff. And I really think there's a lot of pressure on these student athletes uh, because here's a chance now uh, to go out and show what you can do with a little more wide open offense, uh, arguably one of the best defensive coordinators in the country and Dave Veranda, uh, that is a player's defense where players really make plays on defense. Uh, so I think there's enough pressure to go around for everybody at this level. Let's talk about the quarterbacks for a second. Danny Etling, the Purdue transfer, has been playing for a while, played last year against Florida. We also saw Miles Brennan appear in the game. What has been your opinion of how those guys have performed and maybe um, what you see from them moving forward? You know, they're a little bit different in the set that they're both pro-style quarterbacks, um, and, but, but their skill sets are, are slightly different. Brennan a little more mobile. Uh, Brennan uh, seems to be, even as a true freshman, uh, to be able to, to possibly read the field better, uh, takes a little more time, doesn't bail as quickly when the pocket tightens on him back there when he drops back to throw. But Danny Etling is a guy that immediately following the win over Louisville, 
uh, and the announcement that Matt Canada was going to be put in as offensive coordinator here at LSU, uh, went to class when the spring semester began and then went straight to the film room even before spring football began to try to get up to speed on, on what he's going to be expected to do based on what Peterman was able to do last year as the quarterback at Pitt. So you have a, a you know an age-old battle there of, of, of a veteran versus a new guy, and maybe the new guy has a few more bells and whistles, uh, but it's awfully tough to put a new guy without experience into a situation like we saw in Starkville uh, and certainly what we're going to see at the Swamp against Florida. So, I mean, it's one of those tough, places where it's either all or nothing, even though we've seen both of them play. Uh, but you've got a lot of experience on one side and not a lot of experience on the other. So the plan all along from day one, according to Coach O, was to get them some equal reps when games were on the line. Brennan played very little in the BYU game and came in when the game was well in hand. He played in the Chattanooga game when the game was already sideways. Uh, came in against Syracuse when the Tigers needed to score, marched down the field, got a score. But then on the next ensuing drive, threw an interception. Um, same thing happened against Troy. Came in, led the team down the field. Next drive comes in and offers up the interception. That's kind of what you have to live with, and I'm sure Florida fans can understand that uh, when you go from a veteran to a freshman. Uh, but right now LSU is sticking with the experience of Danny Etling. His strength will be if this offensive line gives him the time he needs. He needs a little bit more time. But he's fairly accurate when he has that time. And, again, I go back to the opening comments, which were, you know, right now the offensive line struggling to, to hold against three- and four-man rush. Forget the blitz. They're just having trouble giving Danny or Miles time in the pocket uh, when they try to go downfield on play action. So, um, you know, I think both have done some good things and some, some things that I'm sure they'd like to go back and redo had they had the opportunity. Before we look at the tactical uh, situation and challenges that face LSU this weekend. There's been some some noise in the media about some opponents of LSU, either future opponents or even past ones, making out that the team is soft, that the way it's prepared and coached for is a soft football team. What do you make of that? Well, I would say that, you know, when you watch the film, and I've watched every game in person, I mean, you see at times getting pushed around. Uh, again, not so much in the first two games, but but Starkville, yeah, there was no question about it. They were blown up on both sides of the football uh, for most of that game. Um, Syracuse had more than their share of success on the defensive and offensive fronts uh, against LSU in, in the win over the Orange. And then this past Saturday, Troy dominated. I mean, the score did not indicate to me how well Troy played and dominated that game when it ended up being 24 to 21. So I think when you look at it, sure. Uh, is it the, the look that you expect from an LSU Tiger team that, that wants to come out and throw the first blow and, and play physical and, and play mind games and, you know, the, the things that, that make this program what it is. Um, so I think when you look at it, sure, you can say it's soft. Now to those that I have heard, saying that it has everything to do with Matt Canada being the offensive coordinator. I'm not so sure how much pit football they watched last year. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a little um, um, uh, reticent to say that Pitt was a soft team. Uh, yeah, they have finesse in their, in their game. Yes, they have a finesse passing game. Yes, they use the receivers in a number of different ways, um, uh, more so than maybe just line up and smash mouth football. But that was not a soft football team that he coached at Pitt. Um, and I had a chance to watch four of their games uh, last season, even before Matt Canada's name was on the radar and was impressed with the way they played. They played fast. Uh, they played physical up front. They allowed their quarterback to either drop back or play action. 
and then, of course, they were effective running the football when they needed to. So I'm not so sure that's the reason why, but it's hard to argue that through these games so far this season that it hasn't been a softer LSU team. You know, earlier in the week, Coach O was asked about that in his press conference, and, and he said, hey, our guys came out flat. They've come out flat a couple of times, um, and, and we've got to fix it. So I, I'm sure they're well aware of the fact that they've got to be a little more physical and a little more aggressive uh, at the point of attack. Uh, I just don't know that I buy in completely that it's this change in offense. Chris, let me ask you about some key players, no pun intended here. I know there's some injuries with Darius Geis, um, a few other guys, and maybe talk about Arden Key. Is he all the way back healthy? You know, I think he's back healthy. I just don't think he is in full game shape. Uh, I mean, here's a young guy that, that took spring football off. Basically, his last real football action was the bowl game late in December against Louisville and, and then had to step away for, for whatever reasons. Uh, and then, of course, early or late, I should say, in the spring, had some surgery to his shoulder, which sidelined him for most of the summer works at workouts and, and several, if not all, of fall camp. Uh, you know, his first action was against Mississippi State. Uh, it's amazing to watch a guy like that who was not in football shape still be one of the best players out on the field. But he's not quite the Arden Key that we saw at the end of last season. Uh, he's up to about uh, – came in, I think, somewhere around 260, 265, uh, which is more than likely 15, possibly 20 pounds heavier than, than he would like to be as far as being lean and mean. Uh, Coach O said earlier in the week this week – that you know he's expecting him uh, somewhere around the the 250 mark, uh, which means he's making progress. But without question, he's not quite where he was last year, uh, which is which is tough for that young man, and obviously tough for this LSU defense because he is a game changer. I mean, to that point, if you watch the film of uh, the Mississippi State game, even in his first game back, uh, Dan Mullen had no interest in running his way. Every play of the night was ran away from Arden Key. Now, you can do that when he is maybe a little out of shape. I mean, Arden Key's benefit and the reason NFL scouts love him is that he can still run you down from behind, but he was not able to do it early on in this season, and they're just hoping week by week he gets closer into shape because, you know, you've heard it probably from the time you played football uh, in the peewee leagues that uh, it's, it's hard to get in football shape when the football season begins, and that's kind of the problem I think Arden Key's running into right now. Matchup-wise, are there some matchups that you like that favor, you think, LSU in this game against Florida? Well, I think there are plays to be made for LSU on offense. Uh, you know, a lot of the games so far this year, a lot of the a lot of the schemes, especially in the passing game, has been, you know, down the sidelines. Uh, Etling throwing deep or Brennan throwing deep. Um, but it looks like uh, there's some opportunity in the middle of the field between the hashes um, where, where there's some opportunities. And I think, you know, much like LSU trying to replace five of their front seven, I think there were a key six, seven, eight guys from Florida that made their defense so impenetrable last year uh, that they're trying to replace. So, um, you know, again, without Darius Geis, who I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit, I'm not sure if he's going to be able to go Saturday. Uh, Darrell Williams was, uh, you know, came out of the game late against Troy. Uh, hopefully that's just a minor Nick and he'll be ready to go but you're talking about without two of their key backs things get a lot harder offensively against any defense much less a very good one like Florida has you know the matchups I think are going to be you know maybe the intermediate passing game where LSU really hasn't gone to a whole lot of so far this season it's been a lot of uh, the power run between the tackles a lot of jet sweep motion 
uh, and then, you know, the long, deep ball. Um, and, you know, they've had some success with it. Uh, but I think they're going to try to try a, a few more plays with this new F-back position, which is kind of a, uh, a hybrid of a tight end and a fullback. There's not really a traditional tight end nor fullback in this offense. Uh, there's a group of four guys you'll typically see in those positions, two on the field at the same time, uh, which may be asked to block downfield, may be asked to carry the football, may be asked to drop out and, and, and look for a small pass in the flats. Um, I, I expect maybe we'll see a little bit of that coming up Saturday, uh, especially if the running game starts to stall out uh, with this inexperienced uh, offensive line and maybe a second or third string tailback. I know that you can't give a prediction since you're calling the game, so I'll ask you instead, kind of from the fan and LSU fan's perspective, if LSU loses this game, is there a situation where Ed Ordron only makes it one season? Is that even a possibility? I know people are talking about that. Or or is this a situation where he's certainly going to last longer than a year? No, in my opinion, I, I don't think that is, is a real possibility for a number of reasons. Your question a few moments ago was about the culture. Um, you know, the changes have been made, but the permanent effects on a day-to-day basis really are hard to do uh, in a matter of months. Uh, again, a lot of that People forget, while he may have been an interim, there was really not a lot of changes outside of of game planning and coaching responsibilities through that interim season. Now, a lot of the internal and infrastructure of football was changed beginning in late December, obviously headed into spring football. Um, And as anybody knows who follows big-time college football, uh, changing a culture inside a football operations building, whether a coach has been there three years, eight years, or 15 years, it's kind of like moving an aircraft carrier and trying to do it on a dime. It, it just doesn't happen that quickly. So I think it's a tad bit premature to base uh, any decisions like that based on the record here in 2017. Obviously, as I said earlier, uh, it's hard to ever drop the bar back down if you're an LSU Tiger fan. And, and you know, Coach Ogeron knows that. Uh, everyone involved knows that. Uh, and that's not what they're saying. Um, they're not coming out saying, hey, we're hoping to win X number of games. They're going out to win every game. But I think to your question, it would be a little bit premature to simply say it's going to all be based on the first season coming out of the gate, replacing the number of guys they did uh, on a defense, replacing uh, Leonard Fournette on offense, and, and changing an overall offensive scheme from top to bottom. Okay, well, Chris Blair, the superb LSU play-by-play, play-by-play guy, thanks so much for being on today. Always appreciate your time. No, thanks for having me, guys. Looking forward to a great game. I think it's going to be a, a, a battle. I don't think there needs either team's going to need much motivation to get up for this game uh, because of the rivalry and certainly because of uh, the fiasco that, that took place last year. So uh, I look for a pretty hard-hitting football game and a, and a typical SEC Saturday afternoon battle in the Swamp. Always love chatting with Chris Blair, such a such a good guy and a guy that's willing to give candid answers, especially as LSU is facing a challenging moment in their program. They come into Gainesville, six-point underdogs, 3.30 p.m. kick. Alan, get us ready for what to expect on Saturday. All right, LSU coming in three and two, off a loss to Troy. So if you're not familiar with Troy, you're not alone. They are a a Sunbelt team, not a fairly decent Sunbelt team, but man, that is their first non-conference loss. I think since the year 2000, it's a long streak, embarrassing moment. 
Uh, if you're wondering how this feels to LSU, it probably feels like when we lost to Georgia Southern. So put that in your head and maybe their state of mind coming into this game. Like you said, UF is a six-point favorite at this point. Uh, the most notable members of their coaching staff, of course, Coach Ed Orgeron took over the program last year. Uh, we're still unsure about how good of a coach he is. Not a great record. Maybe his best quality is that he has a funny voice. Their coordinators are pretty high fo- high profile. Defensive coordinator Dave Aranda. Um, they're paying a lot of money. They hired Matt Canada. He's in his first season as offensive coordinator. Had a lot of success at Pittsburgh last year. So those guys are pretty big ne- names for coordinators. As far as injuries go, um, there are some LSU guys who are dinged up. We heard that in the interview. The Gators are fairly healthy for this time of year, but with a notable exception, Tyree Cleveland rolled his ankle, and he's going to be out for a few weeks, two to four is what they said, but sometimes with these high ankle sprains, that they, they can linger for a little while. So very unfortunate for the Gators in that respect. They're going to have to have someone step up. We'll see if anybody does. James, you looked at the film on LSU. Tell us what we need to know. Well, we'll start with the defense, so – like you mentioned Dave Aranda. This is his second year there. Fun fact from him is that his contract is not tied to Ed Orgeron's. He actually has a guaranteed three-year contract apart from whatever happens to Ed Orgeron. That does wow. not happen often with assistants. That goes to show you, A, maybe what Dave Aranda and his agent felt about Ed Orgeron, and B, how LSU felt about him. So obviously one of the bigger names in college football. Uh, he likes the 3-4. If you were listening to the show last year, Nothing is actually different. They play a 3-4 defense. They like to place pressure on the ball. The only, or not the only, but one of the major things going on this year is they have five returning starters from last year. They only had three returning starters playing in the game against Troy. A lot of new faces out there. Their defensive line has really struggled to get pressure on the quarterback and stop the run. They've been losing the line of scrimmage battle, not only against teams like Mississippi State, but also against a team like Troy. Uh, They allowed 206 rushing yards to Troy, 285 to Mississippi State. Teams have had a lot of success running the ball, especially when they spread them out. Uh, If you look on film, teams that are running four wide receivers and one running back, especially with a trips set, and if you don't know what trips is, it's when three wide receivers are on one side of the field. Uh, LSU has had a heck of a time stopping teams running out of that formation. We, in particular, do not really run out of a trips formation that is widespread like that. It will be interesting to note as you're watching the game if we choose to employ a few packages like that because of how poor LSU has been against that particular formation. So essentially, this LSU defense comes in below expectations, uh, down a little bit with regards to their swagger. This is a, a moment for them, maybe a make-or-break moment for them as a defense as a whole. They're, they've been very disappointing, and they have essentially not allowed LSU to be competitive in some of these games because I think as anyone who's followed LSU, their defense is almost always top 10, if not top five. And this is year, this year they're a far cry from that. On the offensive side of the ball, you mentioned Matt Canada, maybe the hottest name in college football last season. Uh, he likes to run a multiple offense. So essentially he doesn't have one formation or one style he subscribes to. He will use a wide variety of formations from a wide variety of different offensive tactics and strategies to put together his game plan he prefers to make a lot of pre-snap shifts lots of motions lots of tight end switching sides of the field receivers motioning across the set and he also likes to spread the ball so he's sort of player agnostic Uh, he likes to distribute it evenly uh, and he likes to do it based on what the defense is doing so 
most of his strategy is based upon things that I particularly like with regards to playing the numbers game and then looking to see what the defense is giving you and then setting up things to trick them and beat them as time goes on. Um, It is still primarily a run-based offense. His goal really is to generate uh, a rushing attack that is potent. They have not had a lot of success this season doing that, uh, especially when Darius Geis was not in the game last week. He may not be in the game this week. That's something to look for. Expect him to see the same thing that we have been saying on this podcast exists on film, which is attacking our linebackers and safeties. I expect him to really create a game plan built around that. So he's going to use what Vanderbilt did, and he's going to use those packages to spread us out and attack uh, that part of the field. So I would expect that to be something they work on a lot this week. Their major weakness on offense is their offensive line. They had two true freshmen starting on the right side of that offensive line against Troy. It's very possible those two guys will have to play again this week. That is a significant advantage for the Gators, and it's something we will absolutely be looking to exploit on Saturday. Now, what I want to do at this point is zoom out a little bit. You've heard us talk, if you've been listeners since day one, about a variety of different offenses. To some of you, you probably understand the intricacies of the air raid, the spread, the spread option, uh, the power running game, and you, you know those things. But for a lot of you out there, those may be concepts you've heard of, but you're not necessarily super familiar with. So Alan and I are going to spend just a few minutes breaking down some of these styles of offenses and what we like about them, don't like about them, and then we'll tell you which one is is our favorite. I actually don't know what kind of offense is Allen's favorite, so I'm going to learn that along with you. And I think Allen, the best way for us to do this is, is we'll just sort of we'll sort of popcorn it as we walk through uh, each one and kind of just talk about what we like and don't like about it as a conversational manner rather than just having one of us list it. And since at Florida we are familiar with the spread under Urban Meyer. Let's talk. Let's start by talking about the spread option offense, Alan. Tell me what the spread option offense is attempting to do, what you like about it, and what you don't like about it. So the spread takes on a lot of different forms. So this is a very broad strokes here, and there's a lot of different strains of it. But what you would see, you know, from a traditional spread offense, especially one that wants to use the quarterback as a runner, I think Tim Tebow, is that you're trying to get Basically, the numbers game, as James mentioned, in your favor. And when you're using the quarterback as a runner, that tilts the field. Now, there's also lots of things with offensive line splits and where you place the receivers on the field. But generally, this is really effective if you have plus athletes. If you have guys out in space, you can really do some damage. It's not the most complicated. It doesn't ask a lot out of its quarterback. Um but you can also see its limitations, and you're seeing that at Ohio State. If you have a guy who can't throw the ball effectively in J.T. Barrett, um, you can make them one-dimensional, and you can stop them. Now, they still shred a lot of teams, and they're having a lot of success. But um, that would be the place where it's weakest. And it's hard to find a guy who can do both. It's hard to find a Tim Tebow um, or some of the more elite guys at the position. And oftentimes, you're stuck with kind of a glorified running back. James, I know you have a lot of opinions on the spread. Give me a few of them. Yeah, I'm going to bullet point this. And as you mentioned, we're going to talk first, as, as we are now, about the run-based spread, which is Urban Meyer's spread. It's to more or less an extent a Gus Malzahn spread and definitely Dan Mullen in Mississippi State. It's also the, the type you see most in high school uh, and peewee league football nowadays. It's very easy to run. The reads are very simple. It's a small playbook. And uh, it can be very effective, as you mentioned, if you have really good athletes. The downsides, of course, are when you face other really good athletes, a lot of those advantages tend to disappear. 
And it tends to be an overly simplistic offense that relies so much on athletes that you're unable to really keep the defense guessing. Uh, and so I don't like it for that reason. You know, I know famously when Urban was here, I sort of said that that offense is like a ticking time bomb. Eventually, they're going to catch up to it. And then when they do, it's sort of a gimmick. I think that's one of the main reasons why you do not see these run-based spread offense in the NFL, although it has brought one probably rather timeless innovation, which is the zone read. And that's a play that even in the NFL, uh, most teams are running some form of the zone read because it is very effective. So some of the spread concepts are extremely good. Running it game in and game out uh, can be difficult unless you have a transcendent player. And if you want to push the spread concepts a little further, uh, you can move more towards the passing style, which is probably best perfected by Bill Belichick and the Patriots. They took a lot of those same principles. In fact, Belichick spent a lot of time with Urban Meyer uh, and that offense, and he sort of adopted them into a more pass-friendly system uh, where that style is based upon spreading you out and creating two-on-one matchups in the passing game. So no longer are you trying to get equal numbers where, like Alan mentioned, you have seven defenders and seven offensive players. And since the quarterback's an athlete, it's seven versus seven. And now all of a sudden you got good numbers. Uh, you're actually trying to create that in the passing game. So you're saying, okay, can we create a two-on-one against the safety? Can we create a mismatch where a linebacker is guarding my best receiver? Uh, can you do things to generate that? So it's a little bit of a different mindset. I prefer that one over the other one. And then Broadening that scope further, there's an offense that is run by Mike Leach, who obviously just beat USC, is run by Kinsbury at Texas Tech. Uh, Sumlin runs a version of this called the Air Raid, which has actually been around for quite some time. Uh, Previous to that, it would have been called like the run and shoot, if you will, in a standpoint. And that offense pushes what you see Belichick doing to an even further level. It favors passing. Uh, Running is a secondary concept, and you're actually really trying to attack with a lot of vertical routes. It's a vertical-based passing offense. You're trying to attack safeties, which would be considered a third-level read, as opposed to linebackers, linemen, and corners. So it sort of flops traditional football on its head and goes about it that way. Alan, I actually don't know how you feel about the air raid, but that, that offense sort of is either loved or hated, depending on who you talk to about it. What are your thoughts on the air raid offense? I tend to love it. I don't know that I would want to run it at a place like UF um, for some reasons I could get into, but it's super fun. Now, if you talk to a Texas Tech fan, there are basically our inverse. They put up so many points and they can never stop anybody. And they are, <laughs> they've been running their head against the wall um, for a while. But I, I like it. I think if you have the right quarterback – it can be really fun. You don't even need a transcendent quarterback. And that's kind of the fun thing about this offense. You'll see guys like Graham Harrell and Luke Falk, you know, these past like kind of air raid guys set records and they're, they're good and they're good decision makers and have, you know, some talent, but they aren't transcendent. And it's a fun offense to play in. Now the problem is this gets again, offensive line heavy. Now when I talked about splits in the um, spread offense, that means how far apart all the, are the offensive linemen from each other. And then often in the air raid, this is a, seems like a small thing, but the offensive linemen don't put their hand on the ground. So they're in a two-point stance, meaning just squatting instead of a three-point stance. So then when you try to run the ball, they don't tend to do it very well. It's hard for them to be as versatile as you would want an elite offense to be. And it's hard to pair that with a really good defense because the problem when you speed up and you go fast and you're scoring really quickly is your defense – is on the field too long. So and there's definitely some pluses and minuses with it. Um, I like, I think it's fun. I wouldn't hate if we ran something like that. Um, 
you see it having success um, with smaller programs. They can use it to their advantage if they have a, a really excellent coach. Um, so I don't know. I'm kind of a fan of it. What about you? I don't know what you're going to say either right here. Yeah, I love the air raid offense. I think that how Bill Belichick did it is how I'd want to employ it. And he sort of tailored it towards the the time-tested principles of winning football games, which is you have to run some power. You have to control the ball. You have to be able to, to block, like you mentioned, a three-point stance. So he sort of and famously took the air raid and the spread and married them and then sprinkled in some old school football on the power set, which we haven't talked about yet. I think that's the best way to be. I think Belichick took all the timeless plays and put him in there. Uh, and I think that's that's one of the reasons why Tom Brady, who's the perfect trigger man for that system, succeeds so well, is they're always putting pressure on the defense. Every play they run is designed to put a two-on-one pressure against somebody and make them make a decision. The air raid is entirely built on placing defenses in a disadvantaged situation in the passing game. But as you mentioned there has yet to have been an air raid team that has really won anything on the big stage. Oklahoma State, top 10 every single year. They win 10 games every year. Can't win the big game. Mike Leach has risen very, very highly. You can beat big opponents like USC. You can move the ball and score. But typically, it's it's tough. It's tough to justify that system as, oh, hey, that's what I want to do because of that. But I think the smart money takes those principles and puts that into their passing game because they are extremely sound, and they're also very, very easy for quarterbacks to read, which is what you mentioned when you named off some of those guys that have had a lot of success. You don't have to be an NFL quarterback to run the air raid. You have to be a good decision maker, and the reads are very, very simple. Uh, Oftentimes, an air raid offense only makes the quarterback read one half of the field. So pre-snap, he decides, I'm going to go right based upon the matchups. He takes the ball. He looks to the right. He throws it to the right. It's a big, big benefit in that system. And it's also a problem when you face teams that are athletically enough to take away those windows, play man to man, do some of the things a team like Alabama would do to you. Uh, But that doesn't render its concepts irrelevant. In fact, I think its concepts have, have really modernized, if you will, the NFL game and their passing tree as well. Lastly, Alan, and there's other systems, of course, we could cover really covering the three main schools of thought is the power. That's what Jim Harbaugh embodies in Michigan. Now, Jim Harbaugh will take some other flavors too, but that's Michigan, that's Stanford. There's a host of other schools that run power. Of course, here at Florida, we run a lot of power. Uh, We're a power team. Alabama is a power team based with spread, and so you can sort of marry these concepts. The power game would be your most traditional, time-tested, sort of what your guys that have been around for a long time love. Control the ball, run the ball, win the game in the fourth quarter is what a power team coach is going to think versus a spread coach who wants to win the game in the first quarter and an air raid coach who wants to win the game in the first quarter. The power guy is sort of the grinder. I want to win this over the long run. I want to wear you down and tough you out and win the game in the trenches. Uh, thoughts on the power style, Alan? It's interesting putting all these things together like this um, because certainly for this offense, you need some excellent offensive linemen. So it's really about who can you recruit and who you can look for. I, you know, this offense is is good because I think you can do a lot of different things and we're hoping that we would be really multiple. And that's an expression that means like we can play a power run game. We can throw the ball. We can be a little deceptive. Uh, I think this is a a fine offense. Um, And obviously if you're comparing yourself, anything to the Patriots, you're always going to come up short. They're the best at everything. I even love how they zig when everyone else zags, they were on the whole, like, tight end thing before everyone else, the modern tight end. They love to employ those little receivers. 
when everyone else was just like, yeah, you can have our West Welkers and our Amendolas. We don't need them because they're just little. And when everyone else is looking for the Des Bryants of the world, which are hard to find. So anytime you have a genius of a head coach, they will make it work, whatever they're running. And so this is an interesting offense because um, if you have, you know, plus athletes like University of Florida should, you can win with this no matter who you're playing. And I think that's the appeal and intrigue of it. Um, but it's also kind of hard to pull off in some sense. And you're seeing us struggle with that a little bit right now. Yeah, it leaves you with not a lot of mojo for error. And and hopefully as we've walked through these, and of course you could spend, we could spend a five-hour podcast going through the X's nose and drawing up a YouTube video on what it looks like and how it tries to attack it. But we don't, we don't have time for that today. But hopefully it gives you an idea when we say a guy like Matt Canada is multiple. He's running all three of these systems. And in fact, each week he might change them entirely based upon who he's facing. I don't love that at the college level. Belichick, as you mentioned, Alan, does that extremely well at the NFL level. Those are professionals. They have tons of time to dedicate towards getting that correct. That's their sole job. They also have a lot more experience in running offensive sets. It's very hard, I think, for college teams to be able to be so multiple because eventually you have too many plays and you get into the old Vince Lombardi versus Tom Landry debate where Vince Lombardi would say the problem with Tom Landry is he had too many plays. And at the end of the game, when you're trying to win a game, Tom Landry's running a play the team has never run. Whereas in Vince Lombardi's team, it's running the same power run play they've run a million times. Uh, and there's a lot of truth to that. And that's why I think you do want to have an element of power if you're if you're a school that can recruit elite athletes because power is how you win games in the third and fourth quarter. Uh, you don't want to be dropping back and throwing the ball 25 times in the fourth quarter to win. You want to be punishing teams, maintaining the ball, taking advantage of their fatigue state. So I like the combo. I actually like what we run here in concept with regards to some of the power concepts, some of the bunch passing formations, as well as some of the five wides. Uh, what I don't like is how our read-based system is is very much run first, and it's not, it is not numbers-based or matchup-based. So McElwain sort of comes from the Alabama school where, hey, we have elite offensive linemen, we're going to run play action, and we're kind of going to run whatever we want to run when we want to run it. And I read some quotes last week from Nick Saban, which he was really talking about how frustrating it was not to just do some stuff based upon numbers in the defense. And that's Nick tipping his hat to what we've been talking about. If you're basing your plays on numbers in the defense, that's very modern. That's a spread philosophy. It's an air raid philosophy. It's a Bill Belichick philosophy. Uh, But Nick is even saying, hey, I wish our guys would do that more often. I think McIlwain, while he acknowledges that, I think there's a large part of him that really wants to run what he wants to run when he wants to run it. And that's a power philosophy. We're going to run this. I don't care how many guys you put in the box, try and stop it. I'm not in love with that. And I'm definitely not in love with that with a guy like Franks. I think you make his job much harder with the passing game. I think a guy like Franks would do exceptionally well in an air raid style of offense with his arm strength, reading those downfield two-on-ones. So the question we get asked a lot is what we do with Franks. With all that background, I think you would continue to utilize play action, but I think you would have Franks read safeties as opposed to linebackers and corners. You would extend the routes vertically and let him use that arm. Uh, So far, we've been unwilling to run a lot of vertical routes. We're much more on the side of running very short drags, little flare outs, little hitches. Uh, But I think you'd see deep comebacks. You'd see posts. You'd see corners. You'd see combo routes. You'd see deep ends. You would change the playbook entirely to attack the final third of the field. And uh, again, that's a lot of air raid type component there. So hopefully this little segment we did 
will will generate some some guidance in your mind as to what's going on. And of course, if you want more, you can always contact us at the pod and say, hey, we'd love to have you talk about this more. We want more of this and less of this, and and we will cater to that. But tying this back to the game this weekend, let's look at the keys to victory, Alan. We know that Canada is now multiple. We know that their offense has been struggling. They've been catching heat. You heard, you heard their play-by-play announcer call out exactly what the fans are saying, which is they're not happy with Matt Canada right now. Uh, they think the team is soft. It's too finesse-based. And that's sort of a culture clash of a power team for 17 years becoming a multiple team and the growing pains that come from that. And that will be on display this Saturday. So what do you have, Alan, as the keys for a Gator victory? Well, I don't want to be overly simple, but they have not stopped anybody from running the ball. And what we've shown, I think, the last couple of weeks in the second half against Kentucky and then against against Vanderbilt is that we can run the ball effectively. Now, I don't want to just, again, run our head against the wall. But I think that's going to allow us um, to be really productive in the run game. And then I would love to see the coaches take some shots downfield. And this is where missing Tyree Cleveland really hurts. So I think the play-action stuff will be open can Freddie Swain, Josh Hammond, one of those guys, and of course we're going to see Tony on some short stuff. Can we get those guys down the field? Um, this is where James Robinson um, would come in handy if he were healthy. Uh, so a lot on those guys' shoulders. Can we see some production from them? Um, again, Antonio Callaway would help here as well. Um, and then on defense, I, I'm not afraid of Danny Etling, and we need to put him on his backside um the pressure has got to get home and i don't think we need to blitz as much you know considering like you said the limitations of their offensive line um so that's very simple run the ball get some pressure um but i'm not and then on defense can we not be confused by all the window dressing so you're going to see lsu probably when i say window dressing they're going to move a lot of people around before the snap this is a matt canada thing to try and confuse you. And our linebackers have been confused sometimes. So can they avoid some of the mishaps um, and find themselves in the right place to make the right play? That's going to be really essential. Yeah, the window dressing part's a key, and I'll start there as a key to victory, and that's going to be communicating clearly on defense. Uh, Going back to that conversation I had with my buddy Tyler, who likes likes to debate a lot of the stuff that we talk about on the pod, uh, there's a benefit to being simple on D and it's that it's much harder to confuse you with shifts and motions. And, and that's something that should be true in Randy Shannon defenses. Of course, there's a lot of inexperienced players out there and there's not an experienced middle linebacker uh, to help call out the shifts as good as David Reese is. He doesn't have, you know, two years of experience under his belt where he's recognized and seen all this stuff. He's still gaining that. So do we communicate clearly and not allow them to steal some touchdowns? LSU has been very unlucky in the past couple of games they played on offense. They've had multiple touchdowns called back for a variety of reasons. And so the big play potential is there. We need to limit that. Outside of that, I think this game is a power game. LSU is still a power team transitioning. Their offensive line is weaker than our defensive line, and our offensive line is better than their defensive line. We have the two positives at the places you want them in a matchup like this one. We need to take advantage of those. I would expect us to outrush them. And I would absolutely expect both of those lines to have a significant impact on the game. And therefore, I think maybe the biggest key to the victory 
is not to allow LSU to steal points from us. Matt Canada is known for trick plays. He has yet to employ one at LSU. I suspect with all of the pressure that entire staff is under, we will see potentially multiple trick plays, especially given our back end of our defense. Expect plays that are built to fool the safeties and the linebackers. I'm imagining in practice we will be addressing those. That is something to watch for. If we do not get beat by gimmick plays, I think it will be very, very difficult for LSU to beat us straight up. I think they've proven on film they're just not quite there yet. Uh, and we have advantages at positions that are important in a matchup like this one. So I like watching the trick plays. Keep a close, close eye on that on Saturday. All right, James, your turn to go first this week. Give me your prediction. We're six-point favorites. LSU has put two just disastrous performances on film in a, well, in a row with regards to playing SEC-ish opponents, I guess. Troy's in Alabama, so we'll consider them a SEC-ish opponent. And then Syracuse up north, <laughs> not a good result either. I like us to control this game. Uh, Franks is still the caveat for me. Uh, I think LSU is going to put a lot of pressure on them. I expect them to load the box more than what we saw Vanderbilt do. And while that's not a key to the game, it is every single week. What do we do if someone loads the box? But this game is a game we should win. Uh, and and given how both of these teams are, it feels like a game that's going to be very similar to last week's game, scoring-wise. I like the Gators 27-17 in this one at home, uh, covering the spread. How about you? You know, this game, is as we approach it, is way different than what I thought coming into the season. You know, especially with all of the emotion of last year and the hurricane fiasco and how we went into their place and stole a win, essentially. You know, I thought maybe there'd be a lot of revenge factors. I haven't really even thought about that. We haven't talked about that on the pod at all. And so LSU's mindset coming into this game is really murky for me. They just lost to a Troy team that, honestly, it's embarrassing for an SEC team to lose at home. Um, I don't know that they're feeling super confident. They're not playing very well. And the Gator team, I think, is gaining confidence. Now, I think that's could be fully... But with the matchups along the both offensive and defensive line, I'm inclined to lean very much in a similar direction as you. And I'm going to say 30 to 17. And that is hopefully with some takeaways. Now, we saw in McElwain's press conference that we're one of five teams in the entire country that hasn't recovered a fumble. That's incredibly bad luck. Now, you could say the Gators have been very lucky with the plays like Freddie Swain either catching a tip ball or not being covered. But this is also a defense, I think, that could create a lot more turnovers than they have so far. Um, I would hope that that would happen against LSU. Maybe we'll start to see the results of a few more of those. So I'm going to go 30 to 17, but I don't feel super confident. This is still LSU, still a lot of great players on that side of the field. Um, so I think um, it's going to be an excellent game. And if the Gators do win 30-17, that's a really strong statement from them. Let's wrap the show up in our traditional fashion by picking the national games. A lot of intriguing games this weekend. We probably could have added three or four, maybe even five more to the slate. Uh, should be some good football watching. So find a television and cozy on up to it. Louisville minus four at NC State. NC State, man, what an intriguing team. I don't know what to make of them. I mean, they lose to South Carolina and you know, handle their business you know, in some other big games. Uh, 
Louisville is also kind of weird. Um, I would stay away from this if I were a gambling man. Um, but I think I'll take Louisville in this game. NC State trending up. Louisville sort of mm, flat to down to up all over the place. I'll take NC State until they uh, momentum-wise the other way. Why not? Georgia. Georgia versus Vandy. Georgia is favored by 17.5 on the road. Which, if you're thinking, what does that mean for Florida fans? It means this. We were favored by 9 against Vandy at home. So the way Vegas does it is you get three extra points if you're at home, which means that on a neutral site, we were favored by six against Vandy. On a neutral site, Georgia will be favored by 20 and a half points, which tells you that Vegas right now on a neutral site thinks that Georgia is about two touchdowns better than we are. Take that for what you will. What do you like in this game, Alan? Man, I just still have those images of what Bama did to Vandy in my head. So... Um, again, that's kind of a lot of points on the road for Vandy, but I think I would still take Georgia in the points. It certainly seems like given Georgia's strength of running the football and how we watched Vanderbilt employ their sort of 3-4 base defense strategy against us, unwilling to leave their corners exposed, that this is a game Georgia could run the score up in. But I'm curious to see how Georgia handles this football game. This could be, hey, we think we're amazing We've arrived, and and maybe it's closer than we think. We're going to find out. Miami, finally playing Florida State, undefeated against 1-2 and two Florida State, gets a three-point favorite heading into Florida State. Three-point favorite heading into Florida State. Who do you like here? Uh, definitely Miami. I mean, FSU squeaking out a win against Wake Forest. FSU hasn't shown me anything yet. That offensive line is abysmal. abysmal. And I'm not to say that Miami is a juggernaut, but I can't take FSU in anything right now um, against a really quality opponent, which I think Miami is at this point. I'm still concerned with with FSU because they're still good. And yes, they have a really bad offensive line, but that was a good win against a good Wake Forest team. That is that is not that's not your dad's Wake Forest, if you will. Uh, it's not even your older brother or older sister's Wake Forest team. That's actually a good football team. Uh, they're not Miami, but Miami's been interesting. I don't, I don't know. This game feels weird. I definitely wouldn't touch it if I was betting on it at all. But I think we're going to learn a lot about both teams in this game. So I'm excited to watch it. I'm going to take uh, Miami, although I, I don't feel great about it. I don't feel great about it. I just think Florida State's got more than people are giving them credit for right now. West Virginia on the road against TCU. Maybe the game I'm most looking forward to this weekend. West Virginia is a 14-point underdog. Wilger and the boys heading there. What do you like here? Now, I do think TCU should be favored by a pretty substantial amount at home. But West Virginia, they put up so many points, and they look so good in moments. I'm definitely inclined to take them in the points there. Uh, so Will Greer slicing up some people. I mean, I th- you can throw on TCU, I think. I mean, Oklahoma State did, but of course they can throw on anybody. Uh, so, I don't know, Mountaineers, maybe maybe an upset, but definitely I'll take the points. This game is so intriguing. They're two ranked teams. TCU looks really good. They've been playing really hot. I think this result is largely influenced by what they did against Oklahoma State, but West Virginia is not is not Oklahoma State. It's a, it's a different team. Will Greer is not the trigger man uh, for Oklahoma State. I'm... I West Virginia has holes. I don't want to say they're going to win this game. I think TCU is good, but this is also a game that I think is going to a tell us about Will Greer against good competition and B tell us about TCU 
uh, against another good team. If TCU wins this game by more than 14, I think it's time to start looking out for them as the season goes on. Bama, 26 and a half, 26 and a half point favorites on the road against Texas A&M. I mean, I guess you have to put this line sky high for people to to start to bet against Alabama. Man, this is the Vegas knows what they're doing because this is about what I would have said. It's amazing that they're favored that by that much against a decent SEC team, but Bama has rolled them. And we think about AM having success during the Johnny Football era, but the last couple of years they have rolled them. Man, I'm gonna take it Bama, even giving up that many points. It's just a bad matchup for AM. I mean, that's just the bottom line. And I don't see that changing. And I think the line should maybe be 40. It seems like <laughs> it seems like Bama has gone on to the they've bought in after the Colorado State debacle when they only won 41-23. They've bought into the we need to defeat opponents and not win or beat them. They've been defeating people. So let's see if they can make it three in a row. But I would not be taking A&M in the points at this stage. No, sir. I mean, the crazy thing with them is when they put up their backup quarterback, he might be better. And so there's no there's no way you can take your foot off the pedal, I guess, unless you kneel it. That's about so, it. That's all they could do. <laughs> Michigan nuts. State, kind of quietly a decent team, heads into the big house to play Michigan. Michigan, 13 and a half point favorites. What do you got here? You know, Michigan has not really found their footing yet, despite, you know, looking dominant at times against UF. Um, you know, Michigan State, I mean, these rivalry games, it's hard to, like, put to say another team's going to win by more than 14. Uh, so I'll take the Spartans. Uh, you know, they had a rough year last year. It's probably it was what's reflected in this line. But a rival game, rivalry game like this, I'm inclined to take a, a closer game. Michigan is the classic power team this year, as we talked about earlier. Their games are typically very close until the middle to late in the third quarter, and then they crush you. And that like perfectly embodies what Harbaugh wants to do, except they've been underwhelming, as you mentioned. Michigan State hasn't had enough to make me think that they can be within two touchdowns of Michigan, especially because Michigan should be getting better every single week. But... I'm going to take Michigan in the points, but only because I think it'd be a fourth quarter scenario. I, I don't see them running away with this one from the from the tip. Washington State versus Oregon. Washington State fresh off a huge Pac-12 game after dark, which I love that branding, by the way. Pac-12 dark is amazing. Uh, against an Oregon team that clearly has a high ceiling, especially in individual game scenario. Oregon favored by 1.5, one and a half points. Tight spread, almost a pick em. What do you like here? I would really like Oregon if their quarterback, Justin Herbert, were healthy, but another, I think, broken collarbone for him, some kind of collarbone injury. Yeah, I, I don't know. Handling success for an upstart team like Washington State can be tricky, but I don't think that Oregon has the guns at quarterback to really keep up with them. So I'm, I'm going to have to take Washington State, even though I don't feel great about it. Yeah, both of these teams have had like head scratching moments. Oregon gets up on Nebraska and chokes and almost loses. Then Oregon does lose two weeks later. Washington State should have absolutely lost to Boise State. This is a Boise State team that is not good this season. So you can't say either one of them has been consistent. But 
I think much like we saw with Mike Leach at Texas Tech, when he had Michael Crabtree and he had sort of the magical season or two there and he got things rolling, they got rolling and he was hard to beat. I want to say that they're rolling right now and they're going to be hard to beat. And I'm not sure Oregon's quite ready yet to beat them, especially given the circumstances you mentioned there uh, with their starting quarterback. I'm going to take Washington State here on the road against Oregon. That should be a really fun matchup as well. The Pac-12 has been an extremely fun conference to watch play football. We love the dog them here on the East Coast and in the South, but I have to give it to them this season. A lot of the most memorable games of the season have come from them. So we'll see what they produce for us this weekend. All right, with that, let's put another bow on this podcast. James, fantastic job as usual. Listeners, thanks for all your support. Really appreciate it. And hopefully we'll be talking to you after a big Gator win. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. Yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations.